Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Well, Dave Barry's at it again. The comedic writer has written for the Oscars, authored more than 25 books, and became the first humor writer to win a Pulitzer Prize for commentary. And now, Dave will be at this year's Miami Book Fair with his latest book, Swamp Story. His comedic misdirection earned him a loyal readership at the Miami Herald, and he turned that style into a varied writing career. He's written nonfiction about what his dog taught him, fiction for young adults, and novels about ridiculous Florida things for us immature adults. He regularly dusts off his old Miami Herald byline to write the occasional column about an iguana crawling out of a toilet. He also puts together an annual guide of truly useless gifts that are nonetheless ripe for comedy. I regret not buying the onesie that would turn my baby into a floor mop. And I'm not making this up. Dave Barry joined us earlier this year. He caught us up on Life in Dave's World. This conversation was so great, we wanted to rebroadcast it. Welcome, Dave. Thank you, Carl. It's good to be here with you and the band that played the introduction live. A lot of people don't realize that you have a live band in here. They live here, actually. They live, and, and yeah, they're great. Anyway, just <laughs> like, shout out to the band. Shout out to the shout out to Palos over there in the corner. No. Uh, so I'm not making this up. That's like become the Dave Barry catchphrase. Yeah, you know, you mean, I don't know, because my column was almost all lies, you know, and <laughs> and when you put things in a newspaper, the, the kind of key to my whole thing was I wrote in the, you know, the tone of an authority like all newspaper people do, mm-hmm. but I was, you know, ludicrously ill-informed and wrong all the time. So when every, on those rare occasions when I would write something that was actually true in my column or you know a lot of times column would be based on something that actually happened but people wouldn't believe me because i lied all the time so i would have to say i am not making this up but i didn't invent the phrase i'm not making this up. i really didn't i'm sure that many people have said that before i did but it did get associated with me and now anybody who says it has to send me five dollars oh is or that even right? thinks it even just thinking it the people right now in the audience no, I don't. I I never made any money off the phrase, but damn it, it, it sure got associated with my name somehow. Well, I'm I'm ten bucks in the hole, so I'm, there you go. I'm uh, so I, I got you at the end of the show. I, I always think of that uh, the John McEnroe uh, quote was uh, "You can't you be, be serious. serious." Yeah, and it was like something he said once early in his career, yeah. and, it, and it came to define his whole career. But he did say it on television in front of like a whole lot of people in the U.S. Open or something, and. He said it in such an emphatic way that it sort of stuck in your mind. That was, you know. Yeah, but but I'm now making this up. I thought it was great because it's you. It's also it applies so much to Florida, right? Like you almost have to tell people this is so ridiculous, but really it happened or what have you. Yeah, the world is sort of now caught up to the fact that Florida is really a weird place, even by the world's standards. Uh, long ago, when it was basically Carl Hyacin and a few other people, you know, and. Miami Herald writers were all aware of this. This is just strange things keep happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, but and and as Carl used to say, you, you know, when people would ask him where did he get these crazy ideas for his books, he'd always say, "You don't need an imagination. You just need a subscription to the Miami Herald." Because I think now people have sort of figured it out, and you know, with the whole Florida man thing, Florida has become accepted as kind of the standard for mm-hmm. American strangeness. We surpassed California. We surpassed Texas. We're we're number one in, in, in weirdness. Yeah, I mean, we have. I think it's something like. This, I could be wrong on this, the numbers, but it's something like we have fourteen percent of the nation's population, but we produce eighty three percent of the nation's weirdness <laughs> in this state. 
Now, a lot of it, a lot of it is people who just are not from here. That's right. I'm always pointing this out. If you actually read the stories about Florida, you know, things, a lot of the times, you know, the guy who chooses to pleasure himself into an Elmo doll at a Walmart <laughs> turns out to be from Cincinnati. You know, you uh-huh. don't do that in Cincinnati. For When you want to do that, you come to Florida. Boy, we, I can't wait to get to Florida. Yeah, exactly. We get are like, my hands on that Elmo doll. We're like Ellis, Ellis Island for weird, stupid... <laughs> people we... uh, but so are you are you a local now because i understand you were from a sleepy little town and i've, I've been to haverford college where oh, you yeah. went to okay to haver and that's a, like that's like a very much like a little murder town where you would set a, a murder happening uh, haverford, my impression. I, nobody's <laughs> ever murdered anybody ever in haverford haverford my my uh my proposal long ago and they've never taken me up on this that they they should their motto should be haverford college we never heard of you either. Because you know, it's like a little tiny, it's a good college. I always say there's like seven of us who graduated from it. Um, but yeah, that's, I was there until I moved here in 1986. So that makes me, what, 36 years in, in Miami. Yeah. That makes me as much a native as most people down here. I think so. Although I, I read that you went to some place called Wampus Elementary, which Wampus. I'm, I'm pretty sure you made that up because mm. I don't think that's a real place. Armonk, New York, baby. That's where I was born and raised, and I went to Wampus Elementary, which is still there. Wampus Elementary School, still there. That's funny. Were you always like that? Were you always the, the funny kid in your household, in your, in your class? Yes. Uh, well, in my household, no, because my household was a funny household. I, oh, really? Yeah. There were four of us kids and, and two parents, and, and uh, my parents were very funny people, especially my mother. In fact, this is where I'm writing a memoir. I, I, I was really reluctant to ever do that but i've been basically talked into doing it and i'm doing it and right now i'm in the very early parts talking about you know growing up and um my mom was a 50s housewife and you know that's what they were called in those days right and she so she you know she has four kids she's got to get us to school get us to the boy scouts the little league and all that stuff you know and just dealing with all that stuff but she was really edgy and dark and at the time, we didn't know that. We just sort of took it for granted that mm-hmm. our mom was like that. You know? In what way? Like, what? Give me an example of, uh, okay, of like, mom being a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So, like, uh, we're, we, there's a pond behind our house in the woods. We, we didn't own the woods back then. We, there were just woods behind our house. And How novel. <laughs> we, 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 we kind of lived out there, you know. That clearly there, wasn't in, my, in South Florida because somebody would have owned that. No, already. no, yeah. yeah. Well, and it's not that way anymore. In Armagh, New York is now hedge fund land, oh. you know, and so everything is owned by somebody. And they're, where, where I used to play are now these gigantic mansions. But but back then it was the Hadleys. The people were named Hadleys, and they didn't care. At least we didn't think they cared <laughs> if we they had, you know if we played in their property. And they had this pond. We call it Hadley's Pond because it was in the Hadley's Wood. And we used to go swim there. You know, this is back. I don't mean like I'm talking. I'm six. My my sister's eight, seven or eight. So we're like two young. Nowadays, if you did that, you'd be arrested for. You know, your parents would be arrested. For, <laughs> you let then, your six year old swim in the pond alone. We're, we're going to the pond. You know. And my mom would, you know, she's in there doing the dishes or whatever. And, you know, we're walking out behind her kitchen is the woods. And we were out, headed off to the pond. We went off the, and my mom would open the, and just like June Cleaver yell, don't drown, kids. <laughs> and we go, we won't. And we all thought that was hilarious, you know. And I now know that that's not what most moms, you know, were like. But that's right. the way she was. She was just, she never took anything that seriously. Um, and so, 
That, so in my house, anyway, to get back to your question, which I'm sure all of the listeners have completely forgotten, but not me because I'm a professional. My house was pretty funny, you know, the way we, and my dad has a good sense of humor too, but he wasn't like, my mom was just really out there. He could keep up with her, but she was He could, the, he appreciated her. Yeah. That's why he married her, I think. And he was a very funny guy too. He really was. So anyway, all of us in our house, we lived in humor. We like, nobody was ever not sarcastic. Ever, you know, we just saw the humor and stuff. And that was how you in our house communicated right. by humor and, and by, by not taking things too seriously, especially not yourself. So when I got to school, and I, I was not a, I was not a good athlete. I was not a big kid. I was not a good-looking kid. I was, you know, believe it or not. I mean, look at me now. I'm like, I, but <laughs> you're an Adonis. I, I don't was, know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I was, you know, I, I, the way I, you know, made friends and the way I, uh, you know, got attention was to be funny, and I was right. good at that. And so, it, and it, this is far from saying like I, you know, even knew then that I was going to go into the because that never occurred to me that there was any, you know, meaningful future connected with this but i was the class clown i was literally elected class clown in pleasantville high school class of 1964 well male class back then is a male and dark identified as male identified as female class clown and um so we had two class clowns me and tony flood she was the female class clown. i don't know where she is now but i hope you have her on the show so she can give her side of this but anyway um if you're out there if if tony Tony, has people Please call us at WLR. Tony Antoinette Flood. We know you're out there. We know you're listening. Anyway, so so yeah. Then I, you know, in school that was that was what I did, and I became that was you know my kind of my identity. You which, were you were kind of the accidental comedian. Not you know no. It was quite intentional. Okay. <laughs> I didn't have any other skills. So, and, but you know that, that's like the you talk to anybody who's who's it goes into the humor field, mm-hmm. and inevitably you will discover there are basic reasons we all do it. One is we're insecure about ourselves. Mm-hmm. We want people to like us, but we don't want people to know us. You know, humor is a very good way to you know deflect people, keep people from finding anything out about you. You just make a joke out of everything, and that was me. That was me all through my school years, and. And weirdly enough, it continued to be me the rest of my life. <laughs> it turns out I never got past that. But that also served you because that's so much comedic writing is somebody is sometimes folks behind the scenes. And and I know you've done both. Like I, I remember you writing for the Oscars and like writing with Steve Martin, who's you know who who apparently has no problem with people knowing who he is. Uh, and and he's he's also did some nice blurbs. I think all the blurbs yeah. are all yeah. Steve Martin. Steve no. Martin has written a short story on the back one, of your new book. One of one of the blurbs is from Carl Hyacin, and then the next five. So it looks like there's six blurbs. One is from Carl, and the next five are all from Steve Martin, <laughs> who's a friend of mine. And who's very, amazing. Like, very that's sweet fantastic. guy. You know? yeah. And anyway, yeah, I, I wrote for him. Um, I've known him for years. He, he, he reached out to me a long time ago. I was so flattered, you know, like, you know, like and he's just this, that's the way he is. He's a, he's a big reader, and he just absorbs the culture. And he, he wrote me and said he liked my stuff, and I'm just, you know, wow, Steve Martin. And then in 2000, and, uh, well, 20 years ago, 2003, he hosted the Oscars. And um, he sent me an email and said, you want to write for the Oscars? And Michelle Kaufman, my wife, like answered yes before I even, like, <laughs> she wanted to go to the Oscars. Yeah, we're going. We're and going I'm to like, Kaufman. I don't know anything about writing for the Oscars, you know. And, and I didn't. Um, but, you know, he was, he really wanted me on the the. The uh, writing group, you know, they, they pick the people they want, the the, the hosts do, and uh, everyone else in that room 
was a professional humor writer, mostly with a lot of TV and, and Oscars experience writing. Well, you were a professional humor writer. You but it's very, very place. different. I mean, I sit in a room and write a column with my name on it. I know every word that's going to be in it. It's going to be in my voice entirely. Mm-hmm. I get to say what it says, what it's about, whatever. Suddenly, I'm in a room and I'm writing for Steve Martin, who is, you know, a humor god. And we're supposed to come up with jokes. And that's like out of body, that's an out of body experience. It was terrifying. <laughs> I've never been more scared. And and I had already, you know, tried to write like jokes, and none of them seemed even a little bit funny to me. And the image I had of the way it worked was it was kind of like Mary Tyler Moore. I mean, the Dick Van Dyke show, whatever, you know, with Morty Amsterdam and what's her name are all firing out gags, you know. I thought it was like that. Um, where you just, you know, these really smart people would just say these really funny things. And think, yeah, let's write that down, you know. And that's what you would do. What, what I found, and it was a kind of a wonderful discovery, and, and in the end I, I enjoyed it immensely, was it is way more collaborative than that and way more supportive than that. Um, like I thought, if you say a joke in this room and it's not funny, they're going to just crap all over you. Mm-hmm. And in, the truth was, that's not how it worked at all. As I began to see... Somebody comes up with kind of an idea and just says it. You just say it. What about, I don't know. And then people go, okay. And then somebody else says another version of it and then another version of it and then another. And then, you know, going back and forth and then go somewhere else and come back to it. And then, you know, eventually it forms. And then suddenly Steve Martin gets up and does it the way he would do it. You know, and nobody delivers a joke the way Steve Martin does. And, you know, and then suddenly it's really funny. But then you think back. It didn't start out that funny or it didn't start out even like that. You're not going to get credit for it. Whatever whatever you come up with, it's not like Steve Martin's going to stop and say, by the way, Dave Barry wrote that joke. <laughs> well, not the whole joke. He gave This part was from Dave Barry. This is not, your name's never, you know, at the very end, your name's going to flash by. That's it. That's what you're going to get. And if Steve Martin was great, that's how you know that, that yeah, it worked. Yeah, and he got you know, really good reviews. That was 2003. And I felt really good about that. You know, it was wonderful. I cannot imagine doing that all the time, like the way these people do. But I'm still in touch with most of the people in that room, or some of the people anyway, in that room, because we just sort of like bonded over that whole experience. You know? Our guest today is humor writer Dave Barry. His commentary won him a Pulitzer Prize, and he's written for the Oscars and has authored more than 25 books. He joined us for a conversation back in January. It was so great, we brought it back in advance of Dave's appearance at the Miami Book Fair. We started by talking about the difference between stand-up comedy and writing humor for the reader. I don't do stand-up comedy, but I do talk to audiences regularly. And I, you know, it, it's kind of like stand-up. I mean, I basically try to amuse them. And so I've, I've learned quite a bit about what the difference between the, the, the two skills. And it's almost completely two, two different kinds of, of senses of humor. I've found that um, when, you do, when you're talking to people, it generally has to be much shorter, quicker, clearer, mm-hmm. what, you're, what you're trying to be funny about. There are brilliant stand-up comics who can weave long, complicated jokes and, and stories and make it work, like the way Norm, the late Norm MacDonald did. But it, most of the time, stand-up comics are more like Jerry Seinfeld. They are, you know, quick, clear, this is the situation. They're really good at explaining quickly what it is they're talking. With, with write, written humor, that doesn't work as well. Uh, it, it comes across too much like a Reader's Digest, you know, and, you know, wackiest things in America last 
if you just write short, I mean, there are people who have succeeded doing that, but generally you need to have more of a narrative there, more of a, a theme, more, you know, more kind mm -hmm. of a structure to it. This is, I hope this is not too, too, uh, Pedantic, no, we like the wonkiness. Give it to us. <laughs> like I, I like how your your comedy and writing, uh, maybe because it's also been in a newspaper. You you're very serious about starting starting into the sentence, and by the time you get to the end of the sentence, you've taken us somewhere completely different. And that's something you can do in writing that is that you cannot do as easily in speech. You you can create a much longer joke, and you can come out of nowhere with a with the, the words at the end, the, the punchline. Well, you can do it in, in spoken humor as well, but you, because it's so much longer in or can be so much longer in writing, it can be more of a surprise. I think what what it is you're trying to do. But I learned early on that things that you know that I had written that I thought were really funny, if I were to just say them, did not necessarily get the audience to react. And there are things that if I in speech can get a great reaction from an audience that I could never write. Partly because when you speak, you can you know in in tone and and. Um, I'm not what I'm um, You can say things with with the way you say something. Don't tell me what I'm okay, trying to say. Sorry. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, bail me out here. I'm trying. You, you, know, you can emphasize. Right. You can pause. You can you know things. And w when you're writing, you have to come up with ways to to create a pause, but 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 you can't stop the reader, so you have to put more words in there, or you'd have to do something. Anyway, it's just a completely different skill, mm -hmm. and I've I've just learned to distinguish between what works in writing and what and what works. In speech, you, the the wonderful part about spoken humor is you get a reaction. You can see it. You know when there is nothing really, few things as as, as re rewarding and 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 just as as getting a big laugh from mm -hmm. an audience. It's just like a good feeling. Stand up comics live for that feeling. Put, put themselves themselves in horrible, embarrassing situations to get that feeling. You don't get that from written humor. You just kind of put it out there, and you might hear later on that somebody liked it or whatever. And uh, you, but you do see that. Like I'm sure you saw that as a kid in the classroom when your class clown. Oh no, That's, yeah, yeah. It's that first burst of. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, yeah. I would be that kid who had just sort of said just things just loud enough that the teacher was now getting really annoyed at me. And <laughs> That's if when I it's did, getting good, right? If I did it one more time, I was in trouble, but I would also get a big laugh. So I would do it, you know, and I did was, believe it or not, sometimes something of a discipline problem because of my need to entertain my fellow classmates. I would never guess that. Yeah, I yeah. would never guess. You're, I'm curious, your, your dad, it's funny you, you mentioned that he was funny because he was, I, I read he was a minister. He was a Presbyterian minister and, uh, and he was, uh, he didn't, he didn't have a church. He didn't, he didn't pastor a church, although he, I, he gave many sermons that I saw him give growing up and he married many, many people. Uh, but he he ran an organization called the New York City Mission Society, which was a an inner city New York City uh, social work agency that ran programs for mostly for kids and summer camps for kids from the, from the inner city. Oh. So and and he was also really active in the civil rights movement. This is in the fifties and sixties. Um, so that was him. So, you know, you tend to think of like, a, you know, a clergyman, you know, a guy with a reverse collar. And right. that was not my dad. He wore a tie like everybody else. He smoked and he drank. Uh, he, uh, he rode this, the train to New York City with the other dads and rode home. You know, and he was a fun guy. You know, it's just that was his job. He was always kind of passionate about um, social issues. What a role model. He was a good role model. He was just very funny, um, but very good. He was always He's a better human being than I will ever be. Oh, <laughs> so that's I, really sweet. Yeah, I always looked up to him. Um, and and 
yeah, that was my dad. It's funny because I think the two serious things I've ever read from you, like that I've come across are the stories of of your father and your mother's passing. Yeah, you know, those like I said earlier that I that haven't written a lot of serious things. My my dad when he died, I wrote I had to write on why I had to write. I wrote a, it was called a million words. It was a short essay for Tropic Magazine. It was just because I, I knew I, I was fortunate enough to know when I was going the last time I was going to see him. I knew he was dying. Yeah. And um, and um, well, I was at our house and my mom. And I had to go. I had to leave. Um, getting heading back to Florida. No, heading back to to Pennsylvania, back then. And um, but I kind of knew. You know, he was sinking fast. He was yeah. living at home, but he wasn't doing well. Yeah. And so my mom and I were hugging and talking, and she said, "Well, go say goodbye to your dad." You know. And we both knew, it, we, we made it sound like, well, I'll see him again. But we both kind of, I think, knew maybe I wouldn't. Yeah. And as it happened, I didn't. So I went in to say goodbye. And I'm, you know, and I'm thinking like, this is, you know, my dad. This is, this is uh, a time for a really important. And he was in kind of bad shape, physically in kind of miserable. And he, and he asked, could, could he get some, um, I can't remember, was it oatmeal? Something like that. Oatmeal, as I remember reading. You know, could he get some oatmeal? And I came back to mom and said, you know, dad wants some oatmeal. <laughs> and, you know, we laughed because, as I said, my mom was. She got it. She always got it. Yeah. She got the joke. And we both, that was pretty, that was, you know, that was a little. So, and there's, a I, lot of, there's a lot of comedians that grew up in, uh, folks who write in humor and, and are comedians who grew up in families who do not have a sense of humor. Well, I feel bad for most people. Yeah. <laughs> but, but anyway, so like, then I wrote about that. I wrote yeah. like, you know, you want it to be meaningful. But then I realized, you know, driving home, crying, yeah, barely look, able to see the road. I'm right, I'm thinking like, you know, I, and this is what became the, the title of the piece, A Million Words. I, I've, I've, my dad has already given me a million words, you know, so I'm starting to break up here. So anyway, so that I'm was sorry. It's that, my, my dad died a couple of years ago. It'll be three years now. I'm in, sorry. Uh, in February, and uh, it's always fresh. Yeah. So I understand. So then, uh, when my mom my mom committed suicide, I'll just say that my mom battled depression her entire life, and uh, after my dad died, she had three very rough years. And in those those years, my brothers and I tried everything to make her life better. Tried, you know, move here, move there. You know, where you know where's she going to live? What's she going to do? And I was, I'm the oldest brother, so I was like, you know, trying to give her advice. I'm in, at this point, I'm in my, uh, I'm just turning 40 and I'm giving my mother, you know, and, and uh, the, the column, and then she committed suicide. And, and uh, I wrote a column about that. And it was called Lost in America because she had been just wandering around. But the point there was, the thing I learned from that one was, uh, you don't, you think you know. You know, but you do not know what your parents are going through, yeah. even though you're more competent because you're 40 and she's like losing it. And she's, you know, in her 70s, she's the one who lost everything. She's the one who doesn't know, does know she's not going to find it, you know, not going to ever find what she's looking for. Yeah. And I mean, not to say that everybody's parents commit suicide, but. But, but I, we but but it's but in often cases we do we do lose our parents and we're able and we live through it and and it. And we're changed for it. So yeah, and I mean, yeah. and for me, the lesson was just don't think you know. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. don't know what uh, what you know what you, they're going through. Um, so I, I just want to say that you know, if you or someone you know needs help, please know that you have options. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number is nine eight eight. So you just 
punch 988 and you have someone there uh, who can talk to you and, and talk to you about how you're feeling. Yeah. Uh, there are certain things that you write to get out of your head, things like that, like to to release your soul to be able to write again. And you've and you've managed to do that in your career. Your career has always been like I think back on um, a, a book that I read and then the movie that was made of of uh, uh, is it Big Trouble? Yeah. And and that that book like you must have been so ready for it to come out, come out and then it was like September 11th. Yeah. And then everything <laughs> got shelved for six months. Yeah, the movie. Yeah. And it's and it's like that's but that's. Humor is also seeing the the absurdity in things uh, in, in life, um, and I wonder if all these things inform you as a as a writer, as a complete person, as you come through these things and you know write things that are serious and write things that are funny and always looking in the absurdity and like how that how have you changed? Do you think is like when you oh. started out writing to now when you sit down to write? Like how do yeah. you find your your writing and your thought process has changed? Well, I I, mean, I don't I, I don't feel like. I've changed that much, but then I know that that's ridiculous. That's stupid. Sure. I am 75 years old. How did that happen? How did that happen? And I've been writing for like more than 40, going on 50 years. So obviously a lot has changed. Obviously what I've written about has changed, but in my mind, it's still like the same process. Um, you know, setting aside the few times I've tried to be serious, it's like, here's the topic. What's funny about it? What's a joke I can make about that? And okay, there's one. Now what's the next one? And we can make. You know, it's like it's like not anything remotely uh, philosophical or intellectual or any. It's really just what's a joke? What's another joke? What's another joke? And so to me, that feels like the same. And I feel like I'm writing the same thing. But I I know that when I go back and read something that I wrote a long time ago, sometimes I don't even remember anything about it. Writing it. And sometimes I think, well, that, that's pretty good. I don't know if I could write that now. And sometimes I think, that wasn't that good. I could do better than that. Um, but when it's good and it makes you laugh again, that's, that, a, that's I a good like feeling. That. I like that. It makes me feel happy. Then it makes me sad that because I can't write it again. That, it's, already, <laughs> <laughs> it's already been written. And I can't do But it, it, I know that I'm a, I'm a different person. I'm, I know I'm older and crankier. And I know I, um, you know, I... I pr- shifted around on what I uh, and what I believe in somewhat but I, I think basically I feel like the same kid who was trying to be the class clown in you know Pleasantville High School in 1965 which is to say I'm skating through life making a living trying to amuse people without having anything useful to say uh, without really doing any hard intellectual work you know and it's still working all these years later so in that sense it feels like I'm the, I'm the same well if I listen back to the last 10 minutes of this I'd say that I I can't wait to read your memoir because <laughs> I think that there's I think that we will laugh and cry in it I think there's yeah a lot. you know the, and I had a long talk with I have a wonderful editor Priscilla Payton at Simon and Schuster and and uh and we talked about this you know I I said well you know I I'm reluctant to write a memoir because I don't, it just feels self-important. I don't feel like I've, you know, got any major things to say. And, and she said, we well, don't have to say anything major, but you do have to sometimes talk about what you really think and what you really feel. And people like respond to that. They like that. And I found that to be true. And so I'm, I'm kind of trusting in that, that, that I will be able to dredge up enough of my childhood that will actually be relatable to other people. That, that, but that is kind of still my goal. 
in the end, I still want it to be entertaining. And, and I, I don't want it to be, I really don't want to come across as a self-indulgent idiot just I, writing about his life. You know? I so don't think that you have any, let's any hope not. fear of that. All right, Carlos, I'm going to hold you to that. You're going to be the guy who reads it and tells me when I'm being that you're, that you're, yeah, I'll be that guy. I'll be your, I'll be your, uh, your reader. You can that. be the seventh blurb. After Steve Martin's five, you can be Carlos like Ritz. Dash, some guy you've never heard of. <laughs> uh, you know, that brings another point, which is how do you keep comedy relevant? Because I was just reading the blurb of Swamp Story, the, the, the little background of it. And you have both an alcoholic newspaper man, which is very like old school, yeah. and you have TikTokers in the swamp, and like that's that's a very wide field of uh, pop culture that we've that we've traveled. How do you do that? How do you? St- um, well, in this case, this to for this book, I, I my daughter is twenty two, and she's of that generation, whatever generation that is. I guess it's. Are they Z? I don't. I can. Never, I don't. They'll probably. They're not. You, I don't think they're millennial. I think they're Z. If you get it wrong, they're going to cancel. Oh no, yeah, so. they all hate me. Already. No. I'm sure they hate me already. <laughs> but you know, she got me into TikTok to look into TikTok. You know, I'm saying, well, what is that? And she goes, oh, this that's called a duet. You know, and it's like, and I'll look and it's like, 43 million people looked at that. You know, this is like really, this is some 10 second thing. And then she'll explain to me why why it's interesting. Can I get my immediate instinct to just say, well, it's stupid. You know, kind of like <laughs> that's my instinct about all music after the 1983. Is it? Right. The last good song was uh, whatever. But I, <laughs> I know that's not true, and, and I really know that. You know, and 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 I know my daughter is a smart person, and she's very funny. And she says, "No, look at this. This is funny." And, and so I say, it is funny. I get it. You know, I just would never have tried to find it because I'm not Generation Z. But anyway, so when I was writing this book, wait, do you uh, do you see do you see your daughter is funny? Tell oh yeah, she's really funny. Do you think? Do you see yourself now in your mom and dad's place with seeing this kid? Oh yeah, no, funny? I I take a lot of credit for. I always say my Sophie, my daughter has a black belt in sarcasm. You know, she <laughs> she grew up with a dad who never ever once said anything to her that he actually literally meant. You know? So she and she's navigated that really do you, well. Do you have to tell her like I love you? I am not making that up. <laughs> no, I, I if I told her I loved her. She wouldn't believe. No, <laughs> Dad, are you dying? <laughs> no, I I do tell her I love. Her. But anyway, she's it's, she's a very funny kid, and she's just very sharp, sharp, sharp uh, sense of humor. She gets things on a on a wonderful meta level. But, but anyway, that's enough bragging about Sophie's sense of humor. That, but I I really wanted to. I had an idea for a story of the set in the Everglades, which is one of the weirdest places in the weirdest state. Yes. And, there's so much weirdness that goes on out there, but I needed a way to make it sort of so that it, the story that was happening out there would not just happen out there; that it would somehow explode and have repercussions everywhere. And and the you know the the way to get there is the internet. Really, is to get there through social media. Right. So I spent some time with Sophie and on it. You know, just looking at how it works, and then try to work work that into the the plot of the book. Um, and so social media plays a big part in this book. Uh, in, in that it takes the actions of a couple of really stupid people, a few really stupid, weird Everglades people, and be, transforms them into this major world event. Not world event, but major news event. Right. And and there's like little, there's little things in it which are, again, real things. There's the Skunk Ape Research Headquarters, well, yeah, that's which what, is a real place, folks. It is really, yeah, they're going to be started. I, I wrote a book, uh, I don't know. Is, seven, this, is the Skunk Ape like a, like a smelly Bigfoot? Is yes, that what we're talking about? Yeah, okay. yeah. It's the, hence the skunk part of the skunk. Oh, right. 
Um, anyway, you were saying you wrote a book. No, I wrote about, a book a, a, like five, six years ago called Best State Ever. And it was about Florida. And it's basically just I went to it was a really fun book to write. It was nonfiction. I just nonfiction humor. I just went to various places, old school Florida tourist attractions or places that only would exist in Florida and wrote about them. So just a series of, of <clears throat> essays really about these places like Weehy Wachee. Like, and uh, there's this place called Casadega, which is a uh, little town north of Orlando that's the psychic capital of the world, or oh. certainly of the United States. Everybody there is a psychic. Oh, wow. You can't get a plumber, but if you need a tarot <laughs> card reading at 3 a.m., you know, and it's this like spooky little town. Anyway, so I, there's all these places. And one of them that I went to and spent a day at was, was the um, Skunk Age Research Headquarters on Route 41. And it, it, I hung out with a guy named Dave Sheely who is basically the it's research headquarters is pretty fancy name for a shack selling souvenirs. Is what it is. <laughs> I don't know how much research is going on out there, but you know, he makes it all. But anyway, well, skunk ape and research next to each other is like the perfect juxtaposition, right? So anyway, Dave Sheely says he saw this thing, you know, this creature and, and people still come and stop and you can buy, you know, beer can koozies and, and t-shirts mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and the people still come looking for the skunk ape, you know? So, Anyway, the the premise of that got me thinking about it because yeah, I really absolutely. enjoyed it, and, and he showed me around, and he's a real swamp guy. I mean, they were they call them gladesmen, the people who actually know the Everglades, live out there. You know, like, if we ever have a nuclear war, they're going to be fine. They're going to be ready. They don't, you know, they don't need anything. They they're going to they're going to eat frogs and they'll be fine. Whatever. <laughs> so, but but I just this whole little culture out there. So I, it just got me thinking about a, a book where some guys out there want to start their own version they're they're jealous basically it was gun game right empire and they, <laughs> and they want to get something going and they're but they're kind of sleazy gen z guys who you know the social media guys and, yep. and they and that's where you know they, they try to get it going and then there's another plot in there that i won't get into but it's sort of there's some bad guys out there, um, it's so, a new pool to play in. These these characters, this this yeah. so what what culture looks like right now. Yeah, yeah, and so I'm curious because we were t talking about how things change and you writing collaboratively, and I know like the Oscars we were talking about, it just hit me. I remember thinking, wow, I wonder what Dave if they had been in the writers' room when Will Smith smacked oh god Chris Rock. I exchanged emails with one of my fellow writers from the Steve Martin days. And we agreed that we would have gone out and punched, uh, punched. Uh, <laughs> we would have gone out and tackled Will Smith. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that, because that's the other thing is like, if that had happened to like Steve Martin, he was your, he was your, your ride or die. Like at that point, you're. Yeah, well, it was, the way it worked the, the first time, I did it twice with Steve was the host. The second time is with, with Alec Baldwin. But the first time it was more of an intimate experience. It was just yeah. us and Steve. And then, and the writers were in this little cubicle right off stage you know steve would go out we're watching him you know from the wings he'd come back we go you know huddle real quick how to go what do you know in fact we we wrote a joke on the spot uh this is 2003 and the big news that was about to break was the invasion of iraq mm. um and it was casting a pall over the oscars and some people said you shouldn't hold the oscars and some people were going to boycott the oscars and all like that and uh, in fact, here's my, I'm going to drop a name here. I went to a party with Steve Martin the night, two nights before at his agent's house. And his agent, I can't remember his name, but he's everybody's agent. And it's like Barbara Streisand. So I'm staying there 
with Steve Martin and up walks Barbara Streisand. And uh, Steve introduces me to Barbara, and I'm thinking, oh, God, my wife, if only my wife were here, she would never leave. Oh, my God, that's it. She would have had her moment. But, you know, she, you know, I'm staying there, and the three of us, me, Steve, and Barbara, and Barbara's saying to Steve, I don't know if I'm going to go, man, um, you know, with a war about this. And he's saying, but we have a good joke about you, <laughs> which was true. <laughs> anyway, anyway, uh, so anyway, that was the big issue, and uh, I, I am getting to a point here. Uh, so we're, we're it's fine. We don't need to make a point. We just have to have a conversation. Okay. So, all, all right. <laughs> so, um, so that we're, we're, we're backstage and Michael Moore wins the documentary, uh, Oscar. I don't know whatever. And everybody knew Michael Moore was going to go make a speech cause that's what he does. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be about Michael Moore and how wonderful Michael Moore. Anyway, <laughs> I don't like Michael Moore. I was yeah, come I, right out and say it. All right. Um, anyway, Michael Moore goes out there and, you know, gives this big anti-war speech. It's, you know, some people were like not happy because it brings the whole crowd down. Some people were like, that's courageous, whatever. To me, Michael Moore just will always make everything about Michael Moore. Anyway, but he comes back and, and it goes off and then there's a commercial break and then Steve Martin has got to go out and start the next segment. And we real quick stick our heads together and I swear to the God to this day, I have been getting some credit for this joke, but I don't remember saying it. But I was there and you know we're all yelling, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Anyway, Steve goes out and says, well, God, it was, a, it was the sweetest thing. They're, you just missed it. The Teamsters were helping Michael Moore into the trunk of his limo. You know? <laughs> and that was our joke. And we came up with that joke on the spot. You know, it was like in the trenches. But anyway, so we were, the point is we were right, right off stage. And, and it was very, all, everything was very immediate. We agreed that if we saw anybody coming after Steve Martin, by God, we would have gone and, and tackled him. Of course, Will Smith's a big guy, so maybe not. Maybe a couple of writers. Maybe, yeah. Our guest is humor writer and longtime Miami Herald columnist Dave Barry. He joined us for a conversation back in January. We're rebroadcasting it as Dave is getting ready to debut a new book at the Miami Book Fair. You know, I'm curious because you you mainly think about entertainment uh, versus even though your career has been so much in writing. Um, what what entertains you now? Like, are you into TVs? Are you into series? Are you into movies? Where's where's your source for entertainment? Yeah, I, I would say like most post-COVID America, I sit home and watch, you know, streaming shows. Uh-huh. You know, like my wife and I, like everyone else, watched White Lotus, you know. We watched, <laughs> we watched Dead to Me, yeah. you know. And, <laughs> and, you know, the it's not, I guess we'd still occasionally go to movies and movie theaters, but it, and I, I know I'm going to sound like everybody else, but it just feels like there aren't that many movies that you really need to go see in a movie theater anymore. Right. What do you need to see on a big screen yeah. versus what can you get the gist of at home on? Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and it's just so much more pleasant to just be able to <laughs> watch it. Like, so I, I, I wanna, feel terrible wanna, saying that because I, I, I mean, like I know the, the movie theaters are, are suffering. Um, but like, That's their problem. Unless it's Avatar or Top Gun or whatever, people don't feel like they need to go see it that way. Right. Well, so you mentioned White Lotus. Is there something uh, like, how do you watch a show like that? Are you looking at it for the comedy or are you just le- leaning back and just being entertained? Um, Both. I, yeah. I, find, I do because I do sometimes write stuff. I'm, I'm working on a, a screenplay now with a, a friend of mine that, you know, where you find yourself picking it apart sometimes Mm -hmm. like well that wouldn't happen or that you know why would that character suddenly be be completely different from what that character was like in the previous scene what changed that you know that's nobody explained that it doesn't make sense that kind of thing but generally if it's really if it's good like uh, the the show that i i enjoyed the most 
lately was called Dead to Me with um, uh, Christina Applegate and I'm sorry I can't remember the name of the other one but it, but it's it's a very funny very well written show and um, and I admire the you know I, I'm jealous of the guys who were the the people who wrote that uh, you know well being a good writer is part jealousy right exactly <laughs> and, and but I enjoy the feeling of being if there's something that's good that I, you know I'm like wow I wish I'd written that because that's very funny do you find yourself going back and forth like you like doing collaborative but then you want to just be on your own for a while and create a little bit and I find that I, I really don't want to write books with anybody anymore okay. I, I, I like you know I've had some good very good experiences uh, Ridley Pearson is a good friend of mine and I wrote a series of uh, young adult fiction books that for Disney, the Peter and the Starcatcher series, and it was a really great experience. And Ridley was wonderful, and but I love the way those books came out, and it was fun. And uh, but in general, um, I just find that I just want my, I want it to be my yeah. my words. In the end. You know, I want to have the final say, and you can't do that with a, a you know a professional writer you respect. You have to give that person you know equal equal say. With screenplays, well, I'm doing a screenplay with Alan Swibel, a friend of mine named Alan Swibel, mm -hmm. very funny guy. We wrote a book a few years ago called Lunatics, um, and the, the, it's been optioned for a movie, and, and we're working together. Screen. Oh, it's exciting. Yeah, it is. I'll accept that like, my experience with these things is they never actually make the movie. <laughs> right. But, Listen, if they pay you the money, that's a good exactly, start. Exactly. You know, there's a whole industry of people writing screenplays that will never get produced, but... But there, like, because it's a screenplay um, and because that's not my field of expertise, I, I really like having Alan on the other end of it, you know, because he, he knows, you know, he knows things about setting up characters on screen that I don't have any idea about, you know, and things you can do that I wouldn't think of. I tend to just write everything as if, you know, as if I were writing the entire book, whereas in with screenplays, with, you know, you can do things with time that you don't do with books. You know, you can do things just by showing a scene that you can't do, but, you know, just by writing another uh, description or another piece of dialogue. Anyway, so it's just nice to have a, a, somebody with a lot of experience and a different, a different kind of knowledge. So I like I like writing screenplay with him. That's got to be rejuvenating too. Is like you write your own thing, you know, like you wrote you wrote the book uh, that was a nonfiction book about the lessons that your dog Lucy taught you. Yeah. Then you write a, a piece of uh, fiction that's you know that's going to come out in a couple months here, Swamp Story. And then you have other creative things. Like I know that you used to perform with the Rock Bottom. Well, now let's not let's not know. get too um, free with the terminology. Creative and Rock Bottom <laughs> Remainders. I don't know if anybody's seen this band as a band of authors. Uh, I mean that alone, band of authors. Band you know, of like, authors, whew, sign me up. Band of authors, <laughs> but not necessarily musician authors. <laughs> but a varied like. Listen, if you've had my Angelo be part of your that's true performance. And that's she, she sang with us. Um, they've all sung with us. You know, one sooner or later, at one point, I think Ernest, Ernest Hemingway got up and belted out a few, <laughs> uh, one of the impersonators from uh, from. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but like uh, you know, Stephen King and uh, uh, Amy, Amy Tan. Tan. Uh, Scott Turow, Mitch Album, yeah, uh, Greg Isles, uh, Ridley Pearson, a lot of uh, Roy Blunt Jr., a lot of good writers, not a lot of good musicians. Uh, what, what did you play? What instrument? I play you? guitar, and depending on who else is in the band, like if it's just me and Steven, then I'm the lead guitar player. Oh, is that because, right? Because he is one of the few people on earth not as good as guitar as, as I am <laughs> at guitar. If Greg Isles is in the band, then I am definitely not the lead guitar player. Right. In fact, I'm turning down to zero because Greg is a very good guitar player. So it just sort of depends. And but we we had Bruce Springsteen up on stage. With come us. on, yep. 
Come on, then that's it. That was the last show. That would have been. It should have been. We we were so we we're such dopes. We we're in Los Angeles, and um, I'm ne- I'm never clear why this happened exactly. We were playing for the American Booksellers Association convention, big party. So it's a bunch of booksellers. oh, that's fun. Everybody, you know, and it was a good show. And somebody in the band had some connection with Bruce Springsteen. And the rumor, we'd heard the rumor that, yeah, Bruce might become, no, I, we don't think so. And all of a sudden, we're on the, we're just about done. And I'm like at the microphone, I'm the, kind of the MC, and I got a tap on the shoulder. And somebody whispers, Bruce is here. You know, You're like, Bruce, Bruce, Bruce who? So I, I, I bring, I said, ladies and gentlemen, Bruce me, and he's slouching out and he's got a ball cap and jeans. And the crowd at first didn't believe it. You know, They thought it was somebody dressed Bruce up. What Springsteen be doing with this group of <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I I did the smartest thing I've ever done in my life, which is took off my guitar and put it on Bruce Springsteen. Wow! Because I will then be able to say for the rest of my life that Bruce Springsteen played my guitar, my amazing Fender Stratocaster that I still have at home. And then I picked up another guitar, and we're like we we don't know what we're gonna do. We only have one song left, and we don't know a lot of songs to begin with. We have one song left, which is Gloria, G L O R I O. And uh, this is not a complicated song. My joke is if you throw a guitar on the ground, it will play Gloria. <laughs> um, right. But I say to Bruce Springsteen, you know, Bruce, do you know, do you know Gloria? <laughs> he goes, I, I, think, I, I, I think I've heard of I it. I can't handle it. And so we, we launch into Gloria oh and we kill it. And here's the thing that I um, will go to my grave saying is my greatest achievement. In this song, I'm singing lead. G-L-O-R-I, and then everybody else is going, Gloria. So in other words, Bruce Springsteen is singing backup to me. Brilliant. So that so we do that song, and there we are standing on the stage, and the crowd is insane at this point. And we're all on stage with Bruce Springsteen and all our instruments and everything, and what do we do? Because that was our last song. We run off the stage. As we have later said to ourselves a trillion times, why didn't we just play any other song? He could play any song. He could play any, you know. Stay there until he decides. It's yeah, time to leave. well, we didn't. We ran off the stage with Bruce, and then we then we're trapped in the in the like this green room for the next hour and a half because this giant mob is formed outside this building, and before they could let us out, they had to disperse these all these people. So we're standing in this room with Bruce Springsteen, just hanging out, and um, at at one point. Somebody had the nerve to ask him, you know, like, what did you, what did you think of the band? And he, this is rough Paris. Mitch Album does a better imitation of this, but he goes something like, "Well, you, you're not, you're not a bad man, but don't, you know, you, you're okay, but don't get any better. You just be another lousy band." <laughs> <laughs> which is good we didn't get any better we followed bruce's advice but that was not the last time we played that was the only time we played with bruce springsteen but we have played with roger mcguinn many times warren zevon used to play with us all the time and we, over the years people judy collins played with us and uh, man, many good artists play with us one time they're not stupid enough to play with us twice but they played with us once well we've been lucky enough to speak with Terrible guitarist, yes, but wonderful humor writer, Dave Barry. Thank you so much for this making is, the Carlos time. is my pleasure. It's always a pleasure. That was humor writer Dave Barry. He joined us on Sundial earlier this year to talk about his new book, Swamp Story. He'll be at this year's Miami Book Fair for two events on Sunday, November eighteenth, and that's Sundial for Tuesday, November seventh. 
Leslie Obay Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's VP of Radio. Our engineer is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. And if you like our show, come see us live at the Miami Book Fair. I'll be interviewing Carl Hyacin on Saturday, November 18th at 1 p.m. We'll talk about his latest book, Wrecker, and his legendary career as a Florida journalist and author. Coming up tomorrow on the program, community historian and archivist Emmanuel George. The founder of the Black Broward Instagram page will tell us how he highlights black history in Broward County. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only. Public Media.